Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Can We Please Talk podcast. I'm Mike Leon. I'm Nick Severi. And we're excited tonight to bring you another installment uh, of this show. We have a very special guest on the show tonight. Uh, Naveed Jamali is going to join us, the editor-at-large of Newsweek magazine. He's a former FBI double agent, uh, Navy intelligence officer, and he's the author of the book, How to Catch a Russian Spy. So he's got uh, a fascinating story of how Naveed worked with the FBI to actually bring down a Russian operative. So we're excited to talk to him about a bunch of different topics. Nick, I think this is going to be one of our better episodes. Yeah, I'm excited about it. And I think we get a chance to pull back beyond the story that Naveed speaks to in this book, but then also talking about what, are the, what is the state of intelligence as it relates to military intelligence in the United States? Um, and just getting his standpoint as, as someone who's served as a spy, but also just someone who's really been on the inside as it relates to what intelligence looks like for the U.S. right now. Yeah, it's a great point. He, and he brings a lot of experience uh, to the table. Um, I, I found out about him through a social post he wrote uh, in regards to what is going on with the Trump campaign now and the, and the different lawsuits. Um, and it just was so intriguing. And, and we reached out to him. And so we're super excited to have him on the show. So joining us now is Naveed Jamali, as I mentioned, the editor-at-large of Newsweek magazine. He's a former FBI operative and the author of the book, How to Catch a Russian Spy, which is being turned into a movie. So we're going to talk to him about that as well. Naveed, I'm Mike Leon. Nick Savary here. Uh, thanks for joining us and giving us a couple minutes. Of course. Th- th- thrilled to be here. So Naveed, we, we wanted to have you on the show. Uh, I mentioned this to you off air. Uh, I saw uh, an Instagram post that you had written and a friend of mine sent it to me and, I, and it was about the Trump campaign and all the lawsuits going on. 
And I just thought it was super interesting and got down the rabbit hole of, of what you've been doing. And we wanted to touch on a bunch of different topics with you. The first is your, your personal story. Um, it's super interesting for a lot of people that don't know about the book itself. Um, it's available now on Amazon. It's sold out of the local Barnes and Nobles I went to today to try to buy it. Um, but it's, it's How to Catch a Russian Spy. And you tell the story about a bookstore that your parents owned and that a Russian operative came into one day to actually purchase something a few minutes later, FBI agents came in, started a relationship with your parents, asking a bunch of questions. Tell our audience a little bit about that story and how you started working with the FBI. Yeah. So, you know, <clears throat> the easiest way to think of this is um, here is we, we were one of the longest, my family and I, were one of the longest running uh, Soviet than Russian um, assets that the FBI had and you know when it comes to there's a there's often a misnomer that when it comes to the cia or the fbi that um, when they run undercovers or they run <clears throat> people that infiltrate whether it's you know uh drug cartels or in my case the gru which is russian military intelligence sure. that it's actually the fbi agents or the cia officer and that's not the case you know the fbi and the cia their job is to run people like me so on one hand, we're on the very bottom of the rung of importance. <laughs> but on the other hand, it's, um, you know, it's people, I don't want to say just like me, but people in that position who really end up doing the, the heavy lifting, whether it's uh, going into a foreign country and spying for this country, or whether it's, as I did, infiltrate the, uh, the GRU, the Russian, Intel Russian military intelligence. And, you know, uh, <clears throat> one of the things to note, Mike, is motivation is a really important part of that. You know, coming out of the Trump era. It's, you know, for me, I've always, I'm a first generation American. Both my parents were immigrants. My desire has always been to be American, you know, and I kind of got into this whole thing, believe it or not, because I wanted to join the Navy as an intelligence officer. And I thought naively that by doing so, by helping the FBI, that I could get literally a letter of recommendation that would then be used <clears throat> to get into the Navy. So, the, the short answer is also, obviously, without spoiling the book, I'm still here and alive, right? So the operation was success. If you see right here, there's a Navy cover. So I made it into the Navy. So yeah, I mean, it, it was, I'm consolidating a lot of things here, but really a lot of this, and when we start talking about Trump, you know, that's one of the things that has really given me a vantage point going into media and looking at and, and, and to journalism is so much of this stuff is driven by personal motivation. And espionage is working people in and understand their motivation and looking to manipulate that manipulate that in the extreme so um you know you're, you're not forcing people to do things they don't want to do rather you're finding things that they want and trying to sync up that desire with the things that you want them to do but yeah that's a that's a good intro to uh, to my background over the past four years you mentioned the trump administration what would you consider to be arguably perhaps the lowest point in the intelligence field in the U.S.? Uh, that's a tough one. So, you know, obviously when I, we were talking before this about Fox and I, when I was at Fox years and years and years ago, I was actually on with, Gren with uh, Grinnell, Rich, Rich, uh, Rick Grinnell. And um, he, you know, he ends up becoming the acting DNI. And, you know, DNI, there's a lot of, within the intelligence community, there's a lot of questions to whether the DNI, Director of National Intelligence, has any value anyway to begin with. Uh, putting that aside, like, when you start putting these political appointees in any capacity, any administration, there's always a question of where their loyalty lies, where their skill set lies. But 
in the Trump administration, we start putting these people, these sycophants who really, I mean, gosh, like none of these people have any of the background to do this. It's, it's hard for the career people. And I don't know how much Im- impact they have, but it's hard for the career people to look at this and be like, Oh, this is our leader. Like it's, it's, you know, it's kind of a, just embarrassing. And I think that that, you know, Grinnell and, um, you know, the others that have come after him, it's just been like round after round of, of political appointees that have no, no background. You know, they have, you know, there you'd want, you, you wanted someone in that role who has like decades of experience, right? They don't have anything. They have like weeks, days. How are they supposed to lead this organization, you know, with any credulence? I mean, no one's gonna look at that and say, this is you know, with any credibility. No one's gonna look at this and say, oh, this, this guy is, you know, this is the guy that I wanna, I wanna follow into battle. It's just not going to happen. You know, and you touched on something there that I wanted to ask you about, because obviously we saw the Trump administration uh, and, and the president's tweet uh, firing uh, Cribes, I believe is his last name, Chris Cribes. Chris Cribes, yeah. Right. right. Um, and so the statement came out last week. We had, we had a, a, a legal analyst on last week who's an attorney. He's also worked with the Jones Day uh, law firm previously in a different consulting role. And I asked him a question about the, the statement that came out from DHS and the Cybersecurity Intelligence Agency, that joint statement and, and the part in bold that said that this was one of the most secure elections in history. What do you make of, first off, about the statement in general? The second part is the, the firing that happened, you know, in the subsequent days. But also, I asked them from a legal standpoint, like, how much of that could be introduced into the record of saying, look, these are appointed officials that sit on these committees that are in charge of the integrity of this election. And that can be introduced into the record as for some of these lawsuits that the Trump campaign is filing in the different states. Right. So I don't think that it, I don't think that we're talking, there are two different things. So when we talk about DHS and we talk about the intelligence community and, and really where he's sitting in his position in his view of the elections, he's talking about external threats. And, um, <clears throat> it's important for Americans to understand that actually when it comes to certifying the vote, it's not the federal government that does it, right? It's each state that does it. So uh, it was actually Obama that tried to push and the Republicans pushed really hard back on this on election security and using DHS to do this. And, you know, there was a lot of thing, things about making uh, elections, even though they're, these are state run efforts, right? They're completely independent of the federal government. The federal government might give them money, but it's up to the state to do this. And, you know, there was, uh, under Obama, they kind of put it under what's known as critical infrastructure. And critical infrastructure is like uh, power plants, you know, power grid, airports, so on and so forth. The idea is that if someone launches a, crit- a cyber attack on one of those critical infrastructures, that is considered, I mean, sh- basically an act of war. Like, we consider that if you take those down using cyber, it's the same thing as dropping a bomb on them. And he added the elections to that. And But again, it's important to understand that when he's when Chris is talking about this, he's talking about this from the vantage point of it's the most secure election in terms of foreign interference. So when we're talking about the Trump administration saying, oh, there's evidence that, um, you know, that there's uncounted ballots or there's this or that, I mean, it's all BS. Um, it's, it's the states that have to certify this. It's not, there's no one that's, that's claiming that the Chinese sent, you know, a million or a hundred thousand votes in for Trump and they haven't, and they were, or, or, or Biden and they were counted. That's, that's, that would have been Chris's watch and that didn't happen. So in this case, it's even more frankly asinine what, what Trump and his, and his supporters are, are claiming. There's just no evidence. And it's again, 
it's clearly, thank goodness, actually, that the federal government is not involved in this because it's up to the states, right? The states handle the presidential election. They certify the vote for each state. They, they handle things at the county level. That's not, the federal government has no purview into this unless they detected, uh, you know, foreign intrusion or intrusion by a, you know, a state actor or a non-state actor, which they, which they have not. Um, so, yeah, I, I feel pretty confident that there's no validity to these claims, but I don't think that it's, you know, uh, the DHS statement could, should be intertwined with the fact that the states have found no evidence of, of malfeasance or, or fake voting or any, any of this. There's no, they've had not substantiated any of these claims. When a new administration comes into power, you know, January 2021, what do you feel would be most critical, aside from putting people into positions of authority from the intelligence standpoint that have the um, background, as you spoke to, what are some other things that uh, President Biden and his team can be able to do to help to restore faith and trust into the intelligence community? That's a really good question. And, you know, one of the things that I have, you know, really would love to champion and would love to see more of is, I think it's really important that when it comes, you know, look, I, I'm a Navy vet. Um, I'm extraordinarily proud of this, but it bothers me. One, I'm extraordinarily proud. Of, on the other hand, it really bothers me. This year was the first year that the Navy had its first uh, female black fighter pilot. You know, 2020, th- th- that's not okay. I mean, I'm extraordinarily proud of her. It's great. But what we need is not the first. We should be at like the, you know, we should be at the point that, that someone passing through this is just a fighter pilot. And the reality is we're not. And when we talk about the intelligence community, look, we still have not had um, people of color represented in, in leadership or management roles, still massively under, underrepresented. Um, we still don't have uh, recruitment that happens. So look, these are 20-year careers. You got to get someone coming out of college. You got to get the right people. We're not getting those people. And if they are coming, many of them aren't staying because it, it's not, you know, there's a lot of reasons for that. So if Biden, uh, the Biden administration is going to restore um, confidence in these institutions, uh, then it's not just about putting, you know, political appointees. Well, that's a hugely important. It's also about committing to getting diversity, like committing to diversity at recruitment and retention. And I think, look, it's the same argument that you could say that, like, if you're in a black community um, and, you know, the police, the officers that make up the police department that patrol your community are overwhelmingly white and don't live in your community, there's a problem there, right? And I think that same thing has to happen with federal government. That we have to do a better job at, at really going out there and recruiting and, and realizing that perhaps, you know, the, the standard that is being set now um, gives advantage to one group of people that gives advantage to like traditional, and, and that may be one of the reasons. So I'm, I'm hopeful, hopeful that they, not just the intelligence community, but, you know, the, the government service writ large, the military, that we need to do a better job at recruiting diversity and retaining it. You know, we, we started at the top of the hour talking about how I found you through a, a social post. And, and we know how much the president is on, on Twitter and, and the other social means that he's on. Um, there's a great documentary on HBO Max that recently came out called Agent of Chaos um, about, you know, the Russia interference in 2016. And we're seeing it now in real-time examples in Myanmar with the social media disinformation campaign. So I wanted to kind of get your thoughts as somebody who has a social media presence what do you feel about social media becoming almost weaponized in a bunch of different places? And even here domestically, you know, even the conversations I have with people now, a lot of the times I'm sitting here going, where'd you get that from? And it's from a Facebook post or it's from this, some right-wing conservative media, or it could be some liberal leaning media. Like, what do you think of social media overall and how it's really become weaponized? I think, you know, like with everything, it's a double-edged sword, right? Because 
you know, we talk and the bad is very bad and, and disinformation is certainly a big part of it. But there's another part of this. You know, we've had we just ran a campaign, a presidential campaign, which had the most voter turnout, highest voter turnout ever in the history of this country. You know, where, where Biden, uh, president like Biden won by a substantial lead. And he did it by by what? By not knocking on one door. And part of the success to that was the fact that he was able to, you know, I, not just the DNC, but like places like the Lincoln Project or other other organizations were able to use campaigning and and use social media and do almost like it's direct campaigning, like get directly to people. So, you know, in that way, I think uh, elections have for, forever fundamentally be, been changed. It's a positive to me in my end. That's my mind. That's a positive. Like, you know, you're not looking at MSNBC and CNN to get this stuff. You're getting it when you open up Twitter and Facebook and you're getting hit directly. The downside is, um, is this, is that th- at some point we're going to have to have the discussion and come to a solution that says, that answers this question. Do platforms, are they, res- are platforms responsible for the content that gets put on them? Are they in short, are they kind of like a publisher? Their stance up until this point has been, hey, we're just facilitating, you know, what goes out there. We have terms of service. And if you violate your terms of service, well, can you? Um, but do they have more of a responsibility? In, in, in fact, are they enabling speech? And as a result, they you know, are complicit if you know, people do bad things on it. I think the answer is yes. But I, um, you know, up until this point, social media platforms you know, have been very reluctant to answer that question because there's liability associated with it. But that's really at the heart of this is if social media companies are held to a standard that says you are responsible, um, I think that things can change. And frankly, they don't want that, which is probably why there you see Facebook and other places, you know, actively going out there and trying to, you know, turn off QAnon and anti-vaxxer accounts and, you know, really trying to cull things because they're very afraid of, of, of government regulation. We were talk, you mentioned a couple of media outlets in your response. Um, when we think of just, when we think of the presence of Russia right now from an intelligence standpoint, what do you feel the media is getting right and perhaps getting wrong about the way we're talking about and just judging by your yeah. lab, there's, a, there's an opportunity to, elabor- opportunity to elaborate here. But yeah, what's the media getting right and wrong as it relates to Russia? So the thing that I want um, Americans to understand is that Russia, for Russia, the Cold War never ended. Uh, when I was, you know, I was active 2005, 2009, um, the Russian GRU intelligence officer, a legit intelligence officer, captain in the Russian Navy, was part of the GRU. He had a cover, you know, a cover here working at the UN. Um, he viewed himself as being behind enemy lines and he wasn't wrong, right? Like we surveilled him. You know, this is, this is not a, this is not a, um, this is not a U.S. person. So we don't have to worry about all, all the, you know, this is a, this is a diplomat. There's a lot of things that can be done, but they're right. And that is something that, you know, I think Americans don't understand is the perception of how Russia looks at us. They look at us as their main enemy. We are the blocker for their success. And when you understand that, then you realize that, you know, I fully believe that there's a connection between Russia and Trump or Trump and Russia, I should say. But I think it also, to some degree, doesn't mean that a democratically, a Democrat president, or, you know, is going to be at any less risk that, that because Biden is in the off, he's going to be, is going to be in the white house that Russia's the threat to Russia diminishes. Russia's threat is consistent. It's constant. It's, it's based on their motivation, their intent and their capability. And, and frankly, as of 2016, what have we done to, to you know, dissuade them from doing anything? What have we done to reduce their capability? What have we done to show that they can't be successful? Nothing. 
So they're just as dangerous. Um, and in fact, I think that the media has, you know, one of the things that really frustrated me is they treated this whole uh, Russian election interference as if it was a legal case, as if we're going to bring these GRU officers and perp walk them and that we arrest them. And as a result, that's the end of Russia. No, these are military officers. They're, they're doing their, their duty. If they're, if they're gone, they're replaced. The, the intent and the capability stays the same. So we've got to start seeing Russia as a threat. We've got to, frankly, you know, we talk about defenses here. We've got to go on the offense. We've got to kind of, a lot of the intelligence officers I speak to, intelligence professionals I speak to, they're really pissed that we're not doing the same active measures back in Moscow that they're doing here. Like, why the hell are we messing with them a little bit? And, you know, that's a frustration. That's all got to change. So Russia remains an extraordinarily dangerous threat. They remain extraordinarily motivated and committed to, you know, continue on causing us harm. And, you know, we should be concerned about that. It should not, you know, our guard should not come down the minute uh, Trump leaves the, uh, the White House. You know, you and I both worked in the news media. We both worked at the same place at Fox. Um, we, the first episode that we did of this podcast series, we did on the news media. Yeah. And, and Nick kind of asked me the question of, what would you do if you were the head of the news media? I'll kind of want to ask that same question to you because the first thing I said was I wouldn't take the job, but also <laughs> it's, it's changed so much over yeah. time. Obviously the advent from radio print to television now to social and how shows are cut up segment wise and posted to these platforms. But the monetization aspect of it is so big that it's too big to oh, fail. Right. So what, what would you advise if someone was going to put you at the head of these networks what is it that needs to be done to get news back to where it's not so much at a slant, either right, left, where we're actually just delivering people the news and it becomes trusted again? So I think, uh, Mike, we should probably let people into a little bit of a secret. You know, when I first worked, when I first started and I was at Fox, I was this young guy and I remember being in the, in the Fox News green room. I don't know if you, if you remember it. But I have, I do. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, and, and the funny thing is Geraldo's daughter works there and, and which, you know, I'm sure. That's, like, so that's I remember, what I worked there. Yeah. <laughs> so I remember being in there and like, you know, and it was like, I was just, I was sitting there like a, you know, like a fly on the wall, just watching everything. I remember coming in there one day and this is when I first started and out walks Alan Combs and out walks uh, Rick Santorum. And I'm like, oh, you know, Rick, you know, Alan Combs is this, you know, he's the, he's the token sort of Democrat that Fox News has. And Rick Santorum, of course, now on CNN is like this former center, extraordinarily right-wing conservative Republican. And I was like, oh my God, they're going to fight. They're going to come to blows. We're going to, you know, this is going to be great. And they walk up to each other like, hey, Rick, how's it going? They give each other a big hug. And I'm like, oh, it's all fake. It's wrestling. Like, I, I told, I told, it's the exact <laughs> analogy that we used on the show. Nick asked the question, is it like wrestling? Yes. Or do they, and I yes. said, these guys are not like that. No, off no. Air. They are no, not like absolutely. that. And, and that's the thing is that what people don't understand is that you play a character when you go on. I'm, I'm just as guilty. You play a character when you go on TV, right? Like someone would be like, uh, okay, something's happening in Turkey. You have 45 seconds to explain it. What the hell am I going to explain this? <laughs> 40 I'll do it. I'll get the, you know, I'll get the, I'll get the hit out there, but it's, you know, there's a reality that part of the problem here is not just the media. It's in part, Americans can't be lazy in terms of understanding an issue. Like you have a civic duty to understand things. You have a civic duty to do more than just, you know, uh, I have two young kids and like, you know, in, in class in school, they teach them, Hey, when you go on the website and they, on the internet, like here's a legitimate source and here's not a legitimate source. And, you know, part of this is, I hate to say it, people are just kind of lazy and they want like really easy things, really difficult 
things fed to them and they want them to you know be resolved quickly and that was one of the things for example Mueller that really frustrated me is people for when I was on MSNBC people were like waiting they thought there was gonna be this big payoff and of course we know it wasn't and I knew it wouldn't and it kind of fizzled so what we can do we have to change the expectation of Americans when it comes to being informed like they need to see that they're they need to do this like you need to it's your it's your civic duty to vote it's your civic duty to be you know aware of what your the issues that are important to you and you know you should want to and the problem is is that like cable news has become too easy in a lot of a lot of ways and look here's the saving grace um it's not the young viewers that are watching cable news right it's it's you know 50 and 60 years and above so we have the whole crop of new you know civically engaged uh, I interviewed some 14 year olds for a story we did for Newsweek and it's like, Hey, these 14 year olds are going to be voting in the next presidential election. You know, these are 14 year olds who have been stuck home because of COVID. They've haven't been in school since March. They're going to remember this stuff. They're going to register to vote. Where do they get their news? It's not MSNBC. It's not CNN. It's not Fox. So, you know, the media is making tons of money right now because there's viewership is on an all time high, but unless we start pivoting to get that younger audience, unless we start pivoting to, you know, actually have substance. Uh, it's going to be, um, you know, I think that we perpetuate, but the hope that I have is that after Trump leaves, I don't think people are going to want to watch political shows. I'm hopeful that, you know, there's a pivot away from sort of political, you know, debate, which really goes nowhere because it's both sidesism, right? There's never, oh, this Rick is right or you know, Don Lemon is right. It's always both sides are equal. Before, and, before Nick jumps in here, I'm, I'm yeah. so happy that you said every single thing that I said on the first episode, for you, <laughs> because I literally told Nick, it is, it is like wrestling, yeah. right? I, I worked on Hannity and Combs when it was back in the day. And then, and then Combs ended up leaving, I think in like 07 or 08. Yeah. And I was telling him about the primetime block with O'Reilly, Hannity, and they had Greta at the time at 10. Yeah. Um, and, and it was working there was, you, you know, you're creating the show. So you're not listening to the show. Right but you're seeing how they act off air. And then when, once you start stepping away from it, when I was interviewing other places, they were like, you worked at Fox. And I'm like, maybe I should rewatch some of this. Like, so it's pretty funny you know, that the, we're hopping the, on the same thing. The people like you that were at Fox were just as professional and were no, you could take them and drop them at MSNBC. People don't understand this. Same thing, same people. It's like the skill set, the education, the temperament, it's the same. And, you know, the same guy that, or gal that does, you know, the green room or does, you know, booking, they could be at Fox, they could be at MSNBC. It's, you know, basically news is structured like a show and they're going to say, what's our demographic? How do we make the show that's going to hit our demographic? It doesn't matter if it's MSNBC or Fox. It's just that the show, the, 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 the construct in terms of how they, you know, who they book and what the stories are is different, but the structure and how they do it is the exact same thing, right? It's like the same salad, just slightly different dressing, same ingredients. Um, you know, I mean, man, I, I have, I actually have really fond memories of, of Fox. Like it was, you know, some places, Shep, Shep Smith is like, was the consummate professional. What did and I he, say? Nick, what did I say? I loved people, working on Shep's show. He yeah, was one of the most just yeah. decent, like, and he cursed like a sailor, which people don't like he would it's always funny you'd walk in and be like mother f this dry. you're like whoa you know but you know i was a nobody and not that i'm an anybody now but i was even you know I, it was just one of the rotating guys that would come through and the thing that always struck me about shep that made me realize he was a class act is he like learned my name so i'd come in there do a hit and 
you know, he's got what, like 80 guys that, you know, 80 other people that throw, throw in that week that he's going to talk to. And as I'm walking out, he always make the point of saying, Hey, Navid, thanks a lot, man. Really appreciate you coming in. And, you know, and there are, I won't say their names, but there are other, you know, hosts who I'd see, you know, when we have the, 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 the leg cam, which I'm sure you know what that is. Like mm-hmm. we'd have, you'd be at the mm-hmm. desk and I'd watch the, and you know, they'd be like looking at their phone as I'm talking. So it's, there's, there's a, I wish people would understand that it's, it is, it is a show. It is, it is fabricated to a degree. I mean, sir, sir, reactions and emotions are real, but a lot of it is, is, you know, fabricated. There's a reason why they have bookers, why they have producers, why they have storyboards. Like it's not, it's not that they just, you know, Oh, let's get a bunch of people and we'll just see what happens. No, that's, that's, that's not the case, which is, you know, coming over to journalism, totally different from like, like actually writing a story and researching it. And it's hard, but uh, you know, people have low expectation for, they want instant gratification. So that's what we're competing with these days. The educator in me wants to nerd out about when you talked about, about information literacy you know, yeah. and the, the gap that exists, seems to exist as it relates to education. So, uh, you know, Mike and I did an education episode recently. I think we're going to revisit because it's such a, just a large discussion. And I think in that matter of information literacy, if we're able to get you back on, I, I would sure. love to just to talk I, as parents. To do um, switching over to the book that you've, you know, that you've got out now. Yeah. Um, just a question, and obviously don't give away too much, but what in your estimation is the biggest misconception about yeah. being a double agent and what's kind of the reality of it? I think the biggest misconception is that, you know, oh, and it's weird. And, and let, let me be perfectly candid. You know, this has been a weird journey for me. I came out, I came out with a book in 2015 when no one gave a crap about Russia. Um, and I, I was, you know, I was just, I was not anyone. I was just a, a technology guy. And then I had to make the move to media. And so it's been five years, pretty intense five years, you know, working some pretty big names, Daily Beast, uh, Military Times, I was sort of Fox and MSNBC and now Newsweek. And one of the biggest things that really struck me the most is honestly the racism that exists out there. This might surprise people, but like I would come out and there'd be all these, and today, I mean, like I'm still the only brown national security expert analyst that that MSNBC has ever had. Mm. And um, I'd come out there and it took me a real way to uh, a moment to realize that there's all these white national security guys who'd look at me and they'd be like, you've got my job. I'm entitled to that job. I am super pissed. And the knives would come out and the pettiness. And so what surprises people about being a double agent is that in a lot of ways, when I was working for the FBI, it was a very, like, you're in a box, right? Like I was doing all the heavy lifting, but there was no expectation that I'm suddenly going to rise from there to run the, the head of the FBI. So when I came out, when I, you know, did this, there was a lot of people who were like, oh, well, look at him. He's, you know, he's a nobody. He's a, he's a brown guy. He didn't do anything. And so a lot of that was just, you know, what we understand now with Trump is a lot of it just was sheer racism that if I was a, you know, a, a white guy, it would be a lot more believable for people to understand this. And, you know, that's been that's been probably really hard um, is to convince they're just people that just will not believe that I did that I did this or I did it that it mattered or that I was anything but like a low level you know whatever and um, it, it just doesn't you know square or circle with what I did I mean this was you know the operation that's really hard to believe that unlike being in the military or playing sports this is not a team thing you're you literally 
it was up to me to get a Russian intelligence officer to do what we wanted. And if I didn't do it, if we failed, if I failed, the national security of this country, you know, could have been harmed. And that's it. That's just it. To me, it's a tremendous thing. And I don't think people fully really understand that. So um, that's been hard. It's hard to say that. And it's hard to sort of face some of the, you know, the, the, the discrimination that comes along with, you know, sort of being in sort of this high visibility role. David, I got to be honest, man. This has been a great interview. We've loved having you on the program. Um, for those of you out there listening, watching us on YouTube, um, head out, get the book, How to Catch a Russian Spy. It's available now on paperback on Amazon um, or go to your local bookstore, Barnes & Nobles. Um, you can check out Naveed. His articles are up on uh, Newsweek magazine. As you mentioned, he's on MSNBC. You can catch him here and there. Uh, we thank you so much for coming on the show today. This, is, this has been fantastic. Man. Hey, guys, thanks so much for having me. I'm really glad it worked out. So that was Naveed Jamali, editor-at-large in Newsweek magazine, uh, former FBI double agent. Uh, it's just great to get his perspective. Uh, Nick, what you, what'd you think of, of Naveed? Amazing. Just an amazing guy, amazing story. Uh, hopefully people who got a chance to watch or listen to this go out and get the book. I think it just paints an amazing story about being a double agent. What is, what's that life all about? Um, and just an awesome dude to get to know. It was awesome to unpack just even from a larger standpoint. What does it mean for the intelligence community right now? It's effect uh, post-Trump, you know, with Trump these over the past four years. So just amazing, amazing discussion. That'll do it for us. Uh, catch us next week with an all-new episode of the Can We Please Talk podcast. I'm Mike Leon. I'm Nick Saveri. Have a good one, everyone. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.